John 20, verses 24 through 29. Jesus and Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sonia. The kids can head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. And as they do that, let me pray for our time in God's Word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are the God who speaks. Thank you that as we open our Bibles, that we hear you speak to us. And Lord, so we ask that you would come before us now, for your word is truth, it is the authority over our lives, and that you would teach us that we would be shaped by it. Lord, help us to see what you would have us to see in this text, and fix our eyes and our hearts upon Jesus, on whom we look. We'd ask that we would be blessed in his name. Amen. In the spring of 1945, Dwight D. Eisenhower wrote a letter to Washington that was intended for the desk of General George C. Marshall. And in that letter, Eisenhower wrote about his visit to the first concentration camp that had been liberated by U.S. forces during the waning days of World War II. In his address, Eisenhower writes that the things I saw beggar description. The visual evidence and the verbal testimony of starvation, cruelty, and bestiality were so overpowering as to leave me to feel a bit sick. I made the visit deliberately in order to be in a position to give firsthand evidence of these things if ever in the future there develops a tendency to charge these allegations to mere propaganda. Eisenhower ordered the collection of documentation of the Holocaust that resulted in 80,000 feet of film footage he also collected numerous pictures, including pictures with himself in there, to document the first-hand witness of the things that he saw at these camps. In many cases, this just being one example, seeing visual confirmation is important in believing that events actually took place. And so we know the phrase, well, I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. But what if we can't see? What if all we have is the testimony of others? Does, does lack of visual evidence mean that we cannot possibly believe that certain things really and truly took place? Well, that is the question for our passage this morning. 
So we begin a new series for this Easter season that will take us right up to Andrew's sabbatical, a series exploring the resurrection encounters of Jesus. This morning, as you heard Sonia read, we're looking at Jesus' encounter with his disciple Thomas. In that passage, what you heard was Thomas's battle with his own disbelief. For him, seeing and touching Jesus was the only evidence that could ever overcome his skepticism. But Jesus reminds us of something in this passage. Jesus reminds us that seeing with our eyes is not the most important factor as we grapple with the claims of the resurrection. Jesus tells us the most important thing is believing. It is faith. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus invites us to move from determined disbelief to blessed faith because he has conquered the grave. Jesus invites us to move from determined disbelief to blessed faith because he has conquered the grave. That's what we're going to spend some time thinking about. And we're going to do that really in three parts. We're going to see how Jesus' resurrection raises doubts, how Jesus' resurrection raises doubts, how Jesus' resurrection addresses disbelief, how it addresses disbelief. And we want to finally look at the blessing that Jesus promises to those who believe, even though they haven't seen. So three things as Jesus invites us to move from disbelief to blessed faith. I want to actually begin, we'll, we'll reread a little bit of what Sonia just read for us, but I actually want to begin in verse 19, because it allows us to get a better feel for where Thomas's encounter with Jesus is placed in the chapter. So look again with me at chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. We hear these words. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We don't know a whole lot about Thomas. I suspect if you asked around, most people would recognize this passage as Thomas's claim to fame. He's, he's doubting Thomas. That's how we tend to recognize him. But I don't, I don't know if that's fair to this man. Because in the rest of John's gospel, the other, the other times we see Thomas appear... In chapter 11, verse 16, he's mentioned in chapter 14, verse 5. He actually seems quite loyal to Jesus. He's a bit pessimistic. He's a bit slow-witted at times. But he never gives us the impression that he ever doubted Jesus. So what do we say about this episode? What What would you say about this episode? Put yourself in Thomas's shoes How would you respond if you had known that your master and teacher and Lord was crucified and buried, and yet your friends come to you and say, we've seen him, Thomas. We've seen the Lord. We've seen Jesus. What would you say? How would you respond? That's really hard to know. 
it's really hard to know what you would say. There's so many factors that would play into your response. So I think, I think one thing that would be helpful for us this morning as we think about this is to clarify the difference between what we, what we call doubt and what we call disbelief. Because I think oftentimes we, we use these terms interchangeably, but I think it's helpful to draw out some distinctions. I've really appreciated the help of, of Richard Phillips, who brings these distinctions out in his commentary, in which he points us to 1 Kings 10 and gives us an example of someone with sincere doubt in the Queen of Sheba when she goes to Jerusalem to visit King Solomon. The queen had heard all of these stories about the wisdom and the glory of King Solomon, and so she travels to Jerusalem to, as the text tells us, test him with hard questions. Her behavior shows her to be skeptical, yes. She didn't believe everything that she had heard, but she was eager to discover the truth for herself. And so she personally inquires about these things that she's heard. So she comes and she poses to Solomon riddles and asks to see the evidence to which Solomon happily offers. And when the queen had finished all of her inquiries, she says, I did not believe the reports until I came and with my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Here we see doubt as almost this prelude to truth, this prelude to knowledge. It gives, it gives birth to belief. The queen was on a genuine quest for truth, and she was willing to believe it when she found it. And perhaps that's some of your, part of your story today, as you have come to know the Lord Jesus. The Lord has led you to explore the scriptures and examine the evidence with an open mind and heart, guided by his spirit, so that you too were convinced by what you have found. And perhaps some of you are here or you are watching today, and this is, where you are, this is where you're at right now in your journey of faith. You wouldn't maybe call yourself a Christian, but you want to examine the evidence for yourself. You want to understand who Jesus is and what he's done and why any of this stuff that happened 2,000 plus years ago matters to you today. If that's you, we are grateful that you're here, that you feel like this is a place where you can come and ask questions and explore faith. And I encourage you to do exactly that, to do what the Queen of Sheba did and ask those questions because it is our prayer that your search would end with Jesus. That you, like the Queen of Sheba, would affirm that, behold, I didn't even know the half of it. I didn't even know how wonderful Jesus is. So if that's what we're going to call doubt, skeptic yet sincere seeking, what do we call Thomas's posture towards his friend's claim that they indeed saw the Lord? Because what we see in Thomas seems quite different. It's clear Thomas had very specific criteria that he needed met before he would change his position. He needed a physical encounter with the Lord Jesus. He needed to see Jesus with his own eyes. But not only does he want to see Jesus, he wants to touch Jesus. He says, unless I can see his wounds and touch his wounds, examine them with my eyes and my hands... I will never believe. I will never believe. Those final words that Thomas utters are actually, they're, they're emphatic words. It's something more along, along the lines of, of what um, a child might say. I'll never, ever, I'll never, ever, ever believe. He was unwilling to be persuaded by the multiple testimonies, only the most 
extreme and unlikely circumstances would change Thomas's skepticism. And so we might call this determined disbelief. Thomas was determined that he would not believe in the resurrection of Jesus until these criteria were met. So just thinking about disbelief for a moment, there are a lot of ingredients that factor into disbelief. And I just want to point out three for us this morning. First, there's evidence. The evidence that we find in the New Testament and especially the Gospels concerning the person and work of Jesus. We need to wrestle with this evidence that he was indeed a real person who was truly God. He actually did die on a cross, that he was physically raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. These, these facts can be overwhelming. I mean, just to point out one, how does a dead man come back to life? Disbelief, we might raise objections or attempt to point out contradictions in these testimonies. And throughout history, that's happened. We have a number of hypotheses that attempt to explain away the miraculous nature of the resurrection. Some say the disciples were deliberately deceitful that they were the ones that actually took the body out of the grave and created this story that Jesus had risen. But this idea, of course, comes up and has to contend with the number of early eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Most of all, it seems unlikely, at least to me, that the disciples, after everything that they had gone through, would risk facing more suffering and persecution from a hostile world, all for the sake of of a lie. Others say that Jesus didn't really die at all, he just appeared to be dead. But this raises a lot more questions. Do we expect a man who was, who was beaten to within an inch of his life, forced to carry a 75 to 100 pound crossbeam on his shoulders while he walked to the place where he would hang on a cross for hours before being stabbed with a spear and locked in an airless tomb, do we expect him that he just fainted? How could Jesus, in his exhausted condition, roll that heavy stone away from the door? How did he walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus and back? What about when he saw the disciples? They don't greet him as a sick person, someone in need of healing. He's, he's seen in power and in glory. How about after all of this? If we explain away the resurrection, we also have to explain away the ascension as well. So where did Jesus go? Did he live out the rest of his life in secret? So there's some who say that the resurrection encounters with Jesus are just visions. They were just created in the minds of the disciples due to excitement, due to hysteria. But do hundreds of people see the same thing at the same time all together? When we wrestle with this evidence that's given to us in the Gospels regarding the resurrection of Jesus, we have to settle on the fact that this is a historical event and also a supernatural event. It is a miracle of God. So our first ingredient of disbelief is the evidence. Another ingredient of disbelief that we grapple with is remoteness. That the claims of Christianity just seem completely, completely foreign to us. And this is perhaps truer today than it has ever been. To quote a study that was done by the Impact 360 Institute, they say, that today's teenagers are less Christian and more confused about moral and spiritual truths than ever before. And perhaps one reason that most young people today are confused about these things 
and are un, is that they're, they're unfamiliar with the gospel. Unlike what we might have seen 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, going to church is no longer a, a cultural norm. And so we do find young people who know about as much about Jesus as unreached people groups in the other side of the world. But it's not just young people. It's not just young people. We see remoteness in older generations too. According to the Gallup poll that was done in 2019, 20 to 25% of adults who grew up in the church or in some other religious group now identify as nuns, meaning they have no religious affiliation at all. Remoteness can entrench us in disbelief because the truth of the gospel can't come to challenge the, the presuppositions that we have. There's times where I often hear folks criticize Christians as having a, a quote-unquote second-hand faith, implying that the reason people believe in Jesus has only to do with the context that they're brought up in, their community, their family situation. And, and sometimes that is true, and there's some validity to that argument. But doesn't that claim also go both ways? Considering our current cultural moment, shouldn't we also say that secondhand doubt is also a reason for disbelief? Just like faith, doubt too can stem from context, resulting in remoteness from the gospel. And so remoteness is an ingredient of disbelief. One last ingredient of disbelief is disposition. Maybe we just think that the claims of the gospel are too good to be true. They are a fairy tale. And fairy tales, well, they're just pretend. Don't tell my daughter I said that, by the way. They're just pretend. Or maybe they exist for some people. They just don't exist for me. We've convinced ourselves that we don't deserve the kind of love and forgiveness and grace that the gospel promises through Christ. It might come from something in our past, something that we're struggling presently, right now. But we think we don't deserve something so wonderful as Jesus. Or we have it in our minds that we'll come to Jesus when we get our act together. When we feel like we're worthy, we'll come to Jesus. The thing is, being, being a Christian is not, is not like being in some kind of secret club. Jesus is not asking us to perform some kind of initiation right to enter in. You must be this holy to enter in. We're not the ones who open the door to God. Jesus does. Jesus is the one who is supremely worthy. No one comes to the Father except through him. And the good news is that he invites us to come. He invites us to come to him. He invites us to hand over our burdens and our sins, whatever they might be, past, present, and he invites us to come. He invites us to come and to know the grace and mercy and forgiveness and love of God that has been poured out at the cross. He invites us to be good news people, dearly beloved in the eyes of God because of what he's done. So disposition is an ingredient to disbelief. And considering all of these things, it's no wonder why the resurrection of Jesus raises doubts. Yet at the very same time, it also addresses disbelief. These three ingredients that we just mentioned, the evidence, the remoteness, the disposition, we see all of those things in Thomas. Thomas needed the proof. Thomas wasn't there when the others saw Jesus appear. Thomas was determined to disbelieve. And yet Jesus comes, comes to Thomas, and addresses each one of these things. Look with me at verses 26 to 28. Eight days later, 
his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. So one week later, the disciples are still in the same place where we left them in verse 19. They're hiding out in a locked room, presumably for the same reason, fearing for their lives. Only this time Thomas was, was with them. And I do wonder what that week was like for Thomas. He likely heard again and again and again his friend's encounter with Jesus all the while maintaining his position. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. When I, can, when I can touch him with my own two hands, then I'll believe. Thomas, having all of the ingredients that we had just talked about, determined to disbelieve, he stood his ground, we would have to think. And yet Jesus was determined to disrupt that disbelief by pulling this Harry Houdini move and appearing before the eyes of, of everyone there and greeting them with, with peace. And this is the second time that Jesus pulled this move, right? Chapter, uh, back in verse 19, we read when he met the disciples the first time, this time with Thomas, he just appears. And we as readers, we wonder, how did he do it? How did he do that? Did he teleport in, phase through the wall, rise up through the floorboards? What's going on? We need to know. But the truth is, we, we don't know. Unlike Thomas and the others who were there, we didn't have the privilege of being eyewitnesses that day. Here's what we do know. We know that the door was locked tight. No one was coming through the door. It's an important, important piece of evidence in this, in this story. We know that at one moment Jesus wasn't there and the next moment he was. That's what we, that's what we know. And so when we consider something like the doctrine of the, the resurrection, we need to also realize that it is more robust than just an affirmation that Jesus rose from the dead. That is true, but, but even as we read through our Bibles, we'll find that that's, that's not necessarily a new thing. The Bible testifies to other resurrection stories before Jesus' own resurrection happens. But we want to affirm it. Yes, Jesus overcame death. We don't want to belittle that point. In fact, we, we celebrate it every single week, not just, not just on Easter. Every week we celebrate the risen Jesus. But we need to note that there's something unique about Jesus' resurrection that we actually see in our passage. In other biblical accounts of, of resurrections, the dead are, are raised to the state that they were before they died. Jesus, on the other hand, he seems to be different. It's as if his body and soul were restored to, to optimal strength and perfection. We could even say that he was raised to a higher level. And this, this transformation, Paul actually talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and 44. He tells us how our resurrection bodies will be modeled after Jesus' own resurrection body that we find in passages like these. That they will be bodies that are incorruptible, incapable of decay. They will be glorious bodies, dazzling with heavenly brightness. They'll be powerful bodies, imbued with energy. Lastly, they'll be spiritual bodies adapted to and perfect instruments of the Spirit. And we see this change in Jesus in our, in our passage and in the other resurrection accounts that we'll be looking at in the, in the coming weeks. 
Jesus wasn't always easily recognized by his disciples. As we saw here, he could suddenly appear and disappear in a surprising manner. But all the while, we also see that Jesus' body was very real, a very real, physical, material body. And so as we said from Paul earlier, Paul talks about Christ's resurrection, giving us a glimpse of what we should expect our resurrection bodies to be like, that they are bodies that are devoid of the present pains and weaknesses that we might feel here and now in the flesh, but that they are perfectly adapted towards our heavenly home. So we don't know how Jesus got into the room, but we would have to assume that it was a benefit of his resurrection body. And he personally comes into the presence of his disciples with a message of, of peace. He comes and gives them a blessing of peace. Well, wait. Doesn't, doesn't Jesus understand the situation that they're in? Can he, can he read the room? I mean, these, these men are, are locked up, hiding in fear for their lives. They're, they're hiding out as fugitives. And he greets them with peace? Considering all that's gone on in Jerusalem over that past week, perhaps a greeting and blessing of peace is exactly what these men needed. Despite their present circumstances, his disciples can have peace because Jesus has vanquished their greatest enemy of death. The disciples can have peace because the penalty for sin has been paid. The the condition on which eternal life was promised, perfect obedience, has been met by, by Jesus. And so these men could have peace. Jesus wasn't oblivious to their situation, but he was applying the reality of the resurrection to what they were dealing with at that moment. And then in the same way, Jesus offers us peace. That no matter what we might be facing at this current moment, Jesus extends a blessing of peace that is grounded in the realities of his resurrection to all who would put their faith in him. It's hard to know what the disciples were thinking, especially Thomas. He'd, he'd not experienced this before. The silence, I think, in the passage speaks for itself. Jesus miraculously appears, pronounces blessing of peace upon his friends, and not a word is said. Nothing. Nothing. You can only guess that there's a mixture of shock and awe in the room, kind of like if you were at a party and something, something very sudden and unexpected happens, everyone stops and diverts their attention to whatever took place. Everyone's eyes now are on Jesus. What is he, what is he going to do? In the midst of the silence, he turns to Thomas, very aware of all the ingredients that made up for his disbelief his objections to the evidence, his remoteness from the encounter a week ago, his disposition of determined disbelief, Jesus knows them all. And one by one, he begins to address these things. Jesus invites him to see with his own eyes the marks of the nails upon his hands, to put his finger in the very real wound to feel flesh and bone. We can imagine Jesus parting his clothes to reveal a deep, penetrating spear wound in his side, saying, Go ahead, Thomas. Put your hand in my side. See and examine my wounds. Know that I really did die. Yet I stand before you right now. 
know that I know that you have heard the testimony of the others, but but come, come to me, know and see for yourself so that you might no longer deny the things that have happened, things that you now see are true. Thomas, do not be a disbeliever. Believe. Believe. John doesn't tell us if Thomas took Jesus up on his invitation to personally examine his wounds. It seems that Jesus' presence was enough to turn Thomas from determined disbelief to be a believer in the resurrection of Christ. The first words we hear Thomas utter to Jesus in these verses is a cry of exclamation as, as, as if being in a dark room, the lights have finally turned on and he could see clearly for the first time in a long time. Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. Let's notice a few things about those words that Thomas utters, my word and my God. They are first and foremost personal words. Jesus is my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Second, these words are are devotional. Thomas calls Jesus my Lord. Tim Keller gives this illustration that when we devote ourselves to Jesus as Lord, he says, "When when a great big truck goes over a tiny bridge, there's sometimes a bridge quake where the where the bridge shakes and shimmies. When a big man goes onto thin ice, there's an there's an ice quake, the ice shakes. But when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, there is a life quake. Everything is is reordered. If Jesus was a guru, if he was a great man, if he was a great teacher, even if he was a genie and a lamp, there would be some limits to his rights over you. If he is God, you cannot relate to him at all and retain anything in your life that's non-negotiable. Meaning anything, any view, any conviction, any idea, any behavior, any relationship, He may change it. He may not change it. But at the beginning of the relationship, you have to say, in everything, Jesus must have supremacy. For Thomas, Jesus is Lord. And the third thing we notice about these words ties closely with the first two. Thomas's cry has a theological significance. Thomas declares that Jesus is my God. Jesus is more than just God's man who was appointed to be redeemer. He's more than just some superhuman. He is God. He is one with the Father. And this is significant because Thomas's cry that Jesus is his Lord and his God forms this Christ-exalting climax, not only to this chapter, but really to John's gospel. If we were to follow along from beginning to end, we would get a, the, the clearest picture of of how John wants us to see Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the Word who eternally enjoyed active communion with the Father. One eighteen, Jesus is the incarnate Son who always resides in the Father's heart and reveals him on earth. Now, Jesus is the resurrected Lord who may be rightfully hailed by his followers as my God. John's intent is that we would stand with Thomas, moved from determined disbelief to blessed faith, and declare that Jesus is indeed my Lord and my God. Many of us here in watching have made that profession. 
We say with great zeal, Jesus is my Lord and my God. Perhaps you are here or you are watching from home and you think to yourself, if I could only have an experience like Thomas, if only I could see Jesus with my own two eyes, it would be so easy to believe at that point. It would be so easy. J. Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective. He's also an apologist. At one time in his life, he would have called himself a, a hardcore atheist and evidentialist. Because as a detective, he believed that truth was always tied to the evidence. Wallace says that jurors evaluate evidential cases every day across our country, and they're asked to make a decision, even though they don't have every question answered or every possible detail explained. When the overwhelming evidence points to a reasonable conclu conclusion, jurors are asked to make a decision. He says the standard of proof in most, the most critical of criminal trials is beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond a possible doubt. He says, I've never conducted the perfect investigation and we've never presented the perfect case before a jury. But in my career as a cold case detective, I never lost. If there's enough evidence to make a decision, they're asked to make a decision. And so regardless of where we find ourselves today, whether you can say Jesus is my Lord or my God, or whether you are still on the fence concerning these things, one thing is true for all of us, that there is not one person in this room who has encountered Jesus the way that Thomas has encountered Jesus. We've not seen with our eyes the way that he and others had. And maybe some of us feel impoverished by this fact. But you know what? Jesus, Jesus calls us blessed. He calls us blessed. Blessed are those who believe yet have not seen. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says to Thomas, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. Even in this text, Jesus sees a time when he'll not provide the kind of tangible evidence this kind of tangible evidence to people. And we know that's, that's coming if, if we read our Bibles. Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. Right now as we speak, he is at the Father's right hand, reigning and ruling. So from the time of Jesus' ascension onward, any who believed in the resurrection, or the resurrection of Christ would do so without the benefit of seeing him with their own two eyes. And yet Jesus calls us blessed. Not because we believe by sight, but because we believe by faith. We're blessed because even though we haven't shared Thomas's experience of sight, we can still hear and read of Thomas's experience and share his faith. We have the same benefits of that common faith. The forgiveness of our sins, the receiving of the free gift of eternal life, being accepted as God's dearly beloved child being delivered from the judgment to come, raised in a glorious body like the resurrected Christ, having power to lead a holy and spiritually peaceful life, blessed to be used by God as a witness to others for their salvation. These blessings are ours that we share with Thomas when we share his confession and make it our own. It's to respond to Jesus, we would say, my Lord and my God. So to conclude, what do, we, what do we actually gain from this resurrection encounter with Jesus? 
Well, first we gain an invitation. Jesus invites us to not be disbelievers, but to be believers in him. And we also gain assurance that all who would put their faith in Jesus are indeed truly blessed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this encounter that you had with Thomas, for the witness that it is to us today, for the fact that you call us blessed, those who have not seen you with our own two eyes, but can read of encounters like this and know that you indeed have risen from the grave, knowing that the same promises and benefits of faith that were those disciples all the way back then who saw you with their eyes, well, they're ours as well, Lord, and we thank you for that. We pray that you would impress upon us the truth and the reality of the resurrection, that we would live it out day by day, that we would walk by faith, not by sight, knowing that there comes a day when we will behold you face to face in glory. Lord, thank you for these things, and thank you for your truth. We ask that you would bless this for us this week. In your name we pray. Amen. In response to God's word,